Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. I like bikes, and I bet maybe some of you too. I remember my first bike in Riverview, New Brunswick. And uh, it had a set of these on it, training wheels. Do you remember when the training wheels were set like too low and your back tire would just spin? Especially whenever it got into a divot and then it would catch and it would shoot a little bit of that dirt and you felt like you were riding a motorcycle? I convinced myself in our little paved driveway in Riverview, New Brunswick that on my little one-speed bicycle with the brakes that you, uh, you pedal backwards to put the brakes on, and my training wheels that I could bike off the driveway and into the ditch over the culvert if I had enough speed and if I leaned back far enough. So I started at one end of the driveway, raced to the other end, and the front wheel went down. I went over the handlebars. I got gravel stuck in my forehead. My mom helped me pick it out. It was a really great memory, biking. Um, I was always fascinated by the power of pedaling. You know, you could make this bike go forward by pushing down on one pedal and then the next pedal and then the faster you pedaled, the faster you would go. And my fascination, I would would watch down at my legs as they pedaled, my little four, five, six-year-old legs, and the faster my feet would go, the faster I would go down the road, but I'd forget to look up. And there were many times where I bumped into parked cars. (laughs) I remember one time I came out of the garage, into the driveway, and right into the hood of our van, just because I was watching my feet pedal that little bike. I grew up uh, with some cousins, and lots of guy cousins in the family, especially over in PEI, where I was born. I don't know if you knew that. But we'd go over for Christmas vacation, we'd go over for summer vacation, and oftentimes in the summer, we would hop on our bikes and have adventures. We'd go from my cousin's house down to my uncle's restaurant, the Blue Goose in Sable. maybe you've been there. Uh, one time we biked up that huge hill, the Bonshaw Hill, to do go-karts, just us teenage boys. I don't know why they let us go on the go-karts without our parents. We'd bike down to Canoe Cove and we'd go swimming at the beach there. Uh, there was this bridge that we liked to jump off of, do some bridge jumping. But on the way to that bridge, there was this one house down the road from my aunt's house that had this dog. I'm pretty sure it was a Rottweiler. I don't know. I think its name maybe was Killer or something like that. And we'd all bike down there, and that dog would be in the front yard. And that was the scariest part of the adventure. So one summer, we're getting ready to do this. All my cousins got new bicycles for Christmas. I couldn't bring my bicycle from New Brunswick to PEI, so they loaned me one. How kind, right? Except it was the worst piece of junk bike you've ever seen. It only had one speed. It was way too small. And they didn't have extra bike helmets, so I wore a hockey helmet with the steel cage. (laughs) And it's like July in PEI, and we're sweating. We're biking down the road. It must have looked like a funny crew. So we're biking along. We're getting to Killer's house, the Rottweiler, and my cousin Kyle is up front, and he's like, get ready to bike fast, boys. We're coming up, you can see the dog in the front yard, here it is, time to go. So we all start pedaling, and we're pedaling as fast as we can go, but my cousins got new bikes for Christmas with sets of these. You know what this is? Gears, yeah, they had gears. 
So what did they do? You can hear all their bikes click and click, shift up, shift up, and they're taken off, taken off. I'm on my little one speed and I'm looking down at my feet, pedaling as fast as I can go in first gear and they're just taken off. And you know about outrunning wild animals, right? You don't have to be the fastest one, you just don't wanna be the last one. Well, that day, I was the last one. And that Rottweiler nipped at my rear tire for what seemed like two kilometers. And my little 11-year-old legs were pedaling as fast as I could go. And then eventually the dog gave up and went home and whew, I survived the day. Until we were done bridge jumping, we had to go back past the house. <laughs> and my cousins didn't lend me one of their bikes. Oh man, it was so nice when I got a bike with gears on it. We're in the book of Ephesians today. And we're talking about a first gear type of Christianity. How many of us are content to spend our lives either with the training wheels or sitting in first gear? We pedal as hard as we can in our own strength, but you know, as long as I stay ahead of that dog, that wolf that's come to seek and devour, that roaring lion, as long as I stay just ahead in my own strength, pedaling with all my speed, then that's a good enough Christianity for me. I'm content in first gear. Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus was, get out of first gear. Experience some of your Christianity. Don't be content with a shallow, first gear, training wheel Christianity. Step it up. So in Ephesians chapter one, we get this picture of the gospel story. And Paul's main point is the gospel story shapes our story. It has to. We can't be content with getting a ticket to heaven and then sitting back and saying, hey, I'm good. I got my gospel ticket on that train to heaven and when the day comes when I breathe my last, I'll cash it in and I'll be good to go. Paul says, no, 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 no. As much as it's true, and he's gonna reemphasize that, that once you make a decision for Christ, you are sealed for, for all of eternity. That gospel truth that you have placed your faith and trust in needs to shape the course of your life. So that's what Paul's prayer for the church is. Ephesians 1, God chose to offer salvation to us and we chose to respond to that salvation. And in responding to that salvation, we have immeasurable riches in heavenly places through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have redemption in his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. We have adoption into God's family. We, have we are blessed in the beloved. His grace pours over to us. Heaven and earth collide and we're united through the cross of Christ. And then we get to verse 11. Ephesians chapter one and verse 11. Paul says this, in him, in Jesus, our Savior, in whom we have all of these riches in heavenly places because of our faith in him, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Doesn't that sound like Romans 8.28? We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? God works all these things according to the counsel of his will, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What's our response to salvation? 
Jesus saved us. God chose us. We, we responded in faith by choosing him. Now the inheritance from God the Father is ours. We've got riches in Christ, redemption, forgiveness, grace, adoption, blessing. It's all ours. Now what are we going to do with it? Look at verse 13. Paul says, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that gospel message that we preach here at Faith Baptist Church, and believed in him. When you heard the truth of the gospel and you believed in him, see, you got to respond in faith. It's not enough just to hear the message. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who have only heard the message. They haven't responded in faith. Maybe the thought is, well, I sit in a church building every Sunday. Come on. But the truth of the gospel calls for a response. And Paul said, when you heard the truth, when you responded in faith, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? It's like Paul's putting special emphasis on this point of our salvation right here on this part of our inheritance. Forgiveness, yes. Redemption, yes. But did you know that at the point of salvation, when you hear the truth of the gospel, you respond in faith, you are sealed with God's spirit. And he is the guarantee until the day you acquire full possession of that redemption. Do you realize that the day that you made the decision for Christ, God placed his spirit within you, sealed you with it, guaranteeing your salvation. Do you realize that today? Until we fully experience our complete redemption. Now, these are some of the first verses I quote when somebody is questioning their salvation, questioning their eternal security. Am I really saved? You know, I made a decision maybe at camp, maybe in kids club when I was this young. And, you know, I, I kind of lived for Christ for a while. There was a change in my life, but then I, I got away from the church and I got hung up in sin and I stopped praying. I stopped reading my Bible. Do I need to get saved again? Do I need to get baptized again? Do I need to, what, what do I need to do? Well, Paul is saying, if you made a decision in the truth of the gospel based on faith, if you put your belief and trust in the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose to give you new life, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee until we acquire full possession of our inheritance. You don't need to be saved again and again and again. There's nothing wrong with rededicating your life. There's nothing wrong with inviting people to keep you accountable in your faith but once you made a decision for Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit. I find great hope in that. This summer series has been all about conversations with God, and today we're talking about two big prayers that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. And I think these are two prayers that the church of today really needs to hear. So the first one starts in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what he prays. For this reason... Everything we just talked about, the salvation, God choosing us, us responding in faith to him, the Holy Spirit sealing us based on that decision of faith in the truth of the gospel. For this reason, verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and then I've seen the fruit of your faith, your love toward all the saints, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul prayed for the church. 
wait a second, isn't the church good? Like, like if we're part of the church, if we're part of the family of faith, the body of Christ, doesn't that mean we've made a decision for Christ? What do we need prayer for now? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be praying for like those people out there who haven't heard the message, haven't heard the truth of the gospel? Aren't they the ones that we should be focusing our prayer efforts on? Paul says he's praying for the church. He's not ceasing to pray for the church. He's remembering them in his prayers continually. Do you realize you need prayer? You need prayer. Look at Paul's prayer for the church, verse 18. Sorry, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. I love that picture of the Trinity. The Father of Jesus giving you the spirit. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Doesn't that sound like the last part of the book of Job when Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I really know you now. This is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, to illuminate the truth of who God is, to illuminate scripture, to illuminate the revelation that God has given, to turn the light on, to help us to understand scripture and who God is. This is one of the functions of the spirit that he seals us with. Paul prays for them to know him by the power of the spirit, wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and not just an academic knowledge, an experiential knowledge, that they would truly know what God is like and how God works. Ephesians 1.18, he continues on his prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the power of the Spirit, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. We're going to talk about those three things. The working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority, far far above all power, all dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a big, powerful prayer. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's almost like a song. So let's break it down to some bite-sized chunks. Paul prays for three things. He's praying for the Ephesian church. You heard the truth of the gospel. You responded in faith. You're sealed with the Spirit. Now I'm praying that the power of the Spirit would help you to know three things. Hope, riches, and power. Now that you've accepted Christ as your savior, you are a Christian, you are a child of God, you are sealed forever, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you're engraven on the palm of the Father's hand, no one can pluck you out of the hand of the Father, nothing can separate you from the love of God, that's not gonna change. Now that you're a child of God, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would help you to know three things. The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and his great, mighty power that he's working for us and through us. So here's the three things. First of all, that you would know the hope. God called you to a hope. Do you have hope today? 
Or are you kind of feeling glum and low and, oh man, there's just so much going on in the world, so much to complain about, so much frustration and pain and suffering. Where is the hope? God called you to a hope. I love what Laura said last week when she was rededicating her life at the river. That was pretty cool. She said, there's a lot of pain and suffering that goes on in people's lives and we need to be real with it. We need to have that conversation. There's a lot of pain in this world, but God has called us to hope. God has brought hope in the midst of this sin-cursed world through his son, Jesus Christ. McLaren says this, Hope is the answer of our heart to the revealed truth of God. He says, why is the activity of hope so important for the Christian life? It's because it stimulates effort. It calms sorrows. It takes the fascination out of temptations. It supplies a new aim for life and a new measure for things of time and sense. It's, it's an invitation. It's a calling. That's why Paul writes, he has called you to a hope. We're not talking blind optimism. We're talking a perspective of faith that sees things not as they are, but as they could be by the power of the Spirit through the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I have hopes and dreams and visions for my family, for my kids, And I want to see them become all that they can be when they surrender their lives to Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit works through them and they understand the love of God and grow in that love. I want to see that. I have hopes and dreams and ideas for our little property in DeBert. I have projects I want to do. I have ideas for the backyard, maybe make it function better and and more pleasing. Do you know what hope does? It motivates When you see a preferred future, especially spiritually through the power of the Spirit because of God's love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it calls you to do something about it. When you have hope, you get up in the morning because there's something to do when you have your focus set on that hope. Paul is praying that the church wouldn't wallow around in sorrow. I hope Jesus comes back soon because this world is so messed up and there's so many things to complain about and I just want to stamp this ticket for heaven. Paul is saying, no, you need to have hope right now. Live with hope. What does that look like? The second one, that you would know the riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The whole idea of inheritance is possession, right? Until you obtain the possession. The prodigal son went to the father and he said, give me my portion of the inheritance. Now here's a question for you. We're about a third of the way through the message, maybe a little bit further, maybe halfway. So here's the little point where we, uh, we re-engage. Here's the question. When was the inheritance actually the prodigal son's? When did it belong to the prodigal son? Was it when the father gave it physically to the son? Or was it always belonging to the prodigal son? It's kind of both, isn't it? We have an RESP for our kids for someday, Lord willing, when they go off to post-secondary education. Hopefully it makes a little dent. I don't know what it's going to cost in 10 years, but hopefully this helps them maybe a little bit. It's already in their names. It already says, 
Reese Charlie Fillmore, Jade Nellie Fillmore, right, written right on the account, they are the listed beneficiaries. It's already theirs, but they don't have their sticky little fingers on it quite yet. Someday when they go off to school, then it will be accessible to them. Now, I think when we think about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, our first thought is, oh, heaven, someday when I die. That's the inheritance. And my name is written, it's mine, uh, but I don't get to acquire possession of it quite yet someday until I die. Then I will be able to walk through the pearly gates and see the crystal sea and the streets of gold. Then I'll be able to experience heaven. But here's a question for you, and I'm going to really oversimplify this. What is heaven? Let me ask it this way. What, what is the best part of heaven? God's presence. Now let me ask you this. Doesn't the book of Hebrews say that not by the blood of goats and sheep and lambs and through the old sacrificial system, but a new way found in Christ's blood, doesn't it say now we can approach the throne of grace? Doesn't it say now we can boldly come before the throne into God's presence and cry out, Abba, Father? Don't we have access to God's presence now? So why would we have this mentality, you know, someday when I am die, then... <laughs> when God is saying, no, 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 you can, you can come into my very throne room, to my presence now. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. How much of the riches of heaven are inheritance for all eternity? How much of that can we experience right now? Okay, here's the third point. That you would know the power, and we're going to hang out here, we're going to jump to chapter 3 and really dig into this. Paul says, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, the working of his great might. He goes on to say, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is working, alive and active in you and me. It's God's spirit. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Where's the power in the church today? You know, people used to go to the local church building because oftentimes it was the first facility in the old village that had electrical power. And they would go to see those light bulbs shining. Or it was the first spot to have a pipe organ. And they would go to hear the brand new technology that was the pipe organ. People used to go to the church building in the center of the village because it was the hub of the community. It was the community center. It was the recreational, it was the arts and culture center for the village. Get this, there was a time when the pastor in the village was often the most educated person in the village. That time has passed. You're looking at exhibit A right here. But there was a time when the pastor was often the most educated person in the village, in the town, in the community. And people would go to him with questions about life and history and philosophy and worldview and current events. It was the pastor that you would go to. Those days have come and gone. People don't often, rarely it happens, people will come to a church for help, for questions, for advice. We can go to Google now. We can pay professionals to take care of it for us. We don't need to go to the church anymore. I, I preached at this little country church in New Brunswick. I think it was their 140th, 150th anniversary, something like that. 
and there were only a few members left and everybody else was visitors for the big anniversary service. And it was this cute little building, um, country, New Brunswick. I preached a sermon all about when little is, little is much when God is in it. You know, the, the little boy's lunch and Jesus fed thousands. And if you give your little bit to God, he can make much of it. Trying, trying to ex- inspire some life and some growth and some opportunity that if God's in it, you can't stop it. It doesn't matter that it's a small church. And the church closed down just a few weeks later. I don't know if it was my preaching. I don't know what it was. But you've been around the Maritimes. You've seen all these little villages and towns that are somewhat forgotten. They all have this massive old church building in the center with this tall steeple and the stained glass windows. And you got to think, what happened? Where's the power of God? It's either decaying or falling apart, or it's been turned into somebody's home or a cafe or a museum. It's no longer a local church. It's just an old building. Where's the power gone? Modern society tends to look at the church as archaic. Why do I need the church? Why do I need a pastor to tell me what's wrong in my life? I live with myself every day. I know what's wrong in my life. Give me answers. You know what's really sad is when the church itself doesn't see the power of God in its midst. You know what's really sad, and I want to be careful how I say this, when people in the church, part of the body of Christ, who have put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus alone, have to go find help somewhere else. And I want to be really careful. Because I have friends in the medical field. I have friends who are therapists. I have friends who do chiropractic work and physical training. I take medication daily for my own health. We just had a hearing test at the hospital this past week for my son. I appreciate professional help. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just asking the question, if we can be real and raw with a clinical professional out there that we pay, that we have no relationship with, but yet we can't be real and raw about our struggles in the body of Christ, what are we missing? Have we tricked ourselves into thinking that there's no longer power for this area of my life. I'll come to the church with my spiritual questions, sure. But when it comes to relationships, I'm going to leave that to a professional. When it comes to the areas that I struggle physically, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to invite my church family in on that. What, what can they do about that? Do we believe in the power of God in the body of Christ as the family of God? Do, do we believe in the power of God? Let me read this verse for you, Philippians 4. 19, Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need of yours. Do we believe that? God is able to supply every need. Paul prays for the church that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I love how it says, um, his mighty power, the working of his mighty power. Bishop Pearson says, there is no parallel to this language in any other writing. And he says, in our English language, this Greek is superior to anything we can replicate it with in its English form. God's mighty, incredible, immeasurable power. 
working in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Then you jump to Ephesians chapter two. And Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God raised you up. The same power that made us alive raised us up with Christ, the power of God. He saved me. I was dead and now I'm alive again. The power of God, his energy, his working. Ephesians chapter three, we talked about the mystery of the gospel for family camp Sunday. You remember that? That now the Gentiles are welcomed in and adopted as sons and daughters of God along with the Jews and that whole old covenant. We talked about that. And then you get to Ephesians chapter three and verse 14 and Paul prays his second prayer all about the power of God. And and we're gonna chew on this a little bit and then we're gonna be done. Verse 14, for this reason, Because now the Gentiles are invited in the family of God because you were saved out of your trespasses and sins that you were once dead in. Jesus called you back to life. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Not just that you would know the power of God, but that you would experience the power of God in your inner being. What is the inner being? Well, the inner being is the spirit, that immaterial part of us, who we truly are on the inside, that part that's able to relate with God, that part that makes us made in the image of God, that part that will exist for all eternity with God in glory, in our inner man, to strengthen our inner man. You remember when Jesus was praying in the garden the night that he was betrayed and he asked the disciples to sit and stay watch? And he said this, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't need to tell you that your flesh is weak. You woke up this morning. You felt your sore back. You're tired from everything you've done this past week. You know that your flesh is weak. More than that, spiritually, when it comes to temptation and sin, you know where you're weak and where you struggle and where you constantly get hung up and have to repent and ask forgiveness and confess those sins. God says the spirit can strengthen you through his power in your inner being so that you can stand firm in those tests, in those trials. Paul is praying that the church would know the strengthening power of their spirit in their inner man. Look at verse 17. Be strengthened in your inner being by the power of the spirit. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So not just strength to stand the test when it comes to your weak flesh and your willing spirit, but now strength to understand the love of Christ. Strength to understand how high, how deep, How wide, how long is the love of God in the face of Christ Jesus? To grow in that love, not just to sit in first gear. Yeah, I know that God loves me. I made a decision. Yeah, but do you know how much he loves you? Have you grown in that understanding as you go through life and through trials and you felt the power of the Spirit sustain you and help you to stand firm, taking the full armor of God to face the wilds of the devil Have you grown in that? Have you experienced higher gears of the love of God in your life? Or are you content to pedal along in first gear? 
filled with the fullness of God. I love how he writes this because it's like he's saying, be full of the fullness of God. (laughs) What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, we talk about Holy Spirit filling. We talked about the seal. We talked about the guarantee of the spirit. When you trust Christ as savior, the spirit indwells you. He seals you. He's your guarantee. You know what the spirit wants to do? The spirit wants to fill every part of you. The spirit doesn't just want, you know, God, you can have all of me as long as it's just the 10% of my bank account. Can you just save the other 90 for me? Or God, you can have all of me. Just let me be able to keep visiting these websites without getting caught. God, you can have all of me. Just, can I just hold on to my Friday nights, right? And Paul says, you can grieve the spirit. You can quench the spirit. You can harbor sin and hold on to areas in your life where the spirit wants to fill that place and you can keep the spirit out because God's not willing to force his will. He's inviting you to chase after him. But if we refuse to chase after him in an area and instead hold on to sin, instead of repenting and confessing and releasing it, then we're not allowing the spirit to do his work in that area. And therefore we're not filled with the spirit. We're indwelt by the spirit. We're sealed by the spirit. The spirit is our guarantee But if we don't give the spirit the full rule and reign and let him sit on the heart of our whole life, then how can we be filled with the spirit? How can we experience the full gears on the cog of the wheel if we're harboring sin and holding areas in our life where we don't want the spirit to invade and cause conviction and repentance? Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Do you know what that implies? Don't be controlled by alcohol. Don't leave an area of your life controlled by alcohol and therefore not allow the Spirit to control your whole life. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Let Him control every part of your life. Don't hide anything back. God knows it's there. God knows the skeleton in your closet. Invite Him in. Let the Holy Spirit fill every part, every aspect of your life. And then Paul says, be filled with the fullness of God. I love that. It's pointed out that Paul is inviting the church who have the indwelt spirit of God to embrace and experience all the fullness of God. Don't be content just with a surface level understanding. Go into all the depths and heights and widths and lengths of the love of God for you in the face of Jesus Christ. Dig into it, rest in it, meditate on it. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. What do you expect God to do in your life? What what are you asking for God to do in your life? Paul says, Whatever you ask, whatever you think that you would like or you are hopeful or you want God to do in your life, he is able to do far more abundantly than all of that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the power of God exceeds any of your expectations? In a modern society where we run to try and find all the answers out there and Paul says, He is able to do far more abundantly than anything you could ask or think. What do you need today? 
Where do you need God to speak into your life? Where do you need his power? What area of your life are you harboring sin? You're not letting him in. What if you let the Holy Spirit fill all of you, every part? What if you held nothing back from God? What if we truly believed in the power of God that it was able to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think? Church, I don't know what gear we're operating in right now, but I just get this picture of this six foot two man on this little kid's bike because he was scared to take his training wheels off. And he's going for a ride with his kids and he's trying to get down the road and he's just pedaling, 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 pedaling in his own strength. And God's saying, you know, there, there, is, there is more to this that you can experience now. You don't have to have this shallow, entry-level, elementary, you know, the milk and meat that Paul talks about. You can, you can graduate here. You can understand more of the love of God. Maybe it's time to shift into another gear. Maybe it's time to take the training wheels off. Let's close in a word of prayer today. Father God, I want to thank you for your word today. Thank you for the power of your word. God, we pray in a society that is so fast and quick and acceptable and it's all about convenience and we don't want to get too deep into it. We don't want to get too invested. We don't want to be too raw, too real. We're just going to be happy with, with a smile and a wave and a quick hello and then we'll move on with our life. God, would you help us to go to the next level, to get to the next gear that we would really embrace the power of God and the power of the Spirit, the unity of the cross that we see here in our church family, that we would be real with one another and that we would believe that the power of God can speak into so many areas of our life that we haven't allowed you to step into. God, if it's sin in our life, if we're keeping you from a certain area, if we're, if we're scared to shift gears in our faith and, and take more of a stand for you because it might cost us something that we're holding on to in this world, would you convict us of that? Give us the courage to confess it, to repent of it, to release it and to turn from it and fully embrace you and invite you into that area of our life that we've been keeping for ourselves. Jesus, I pray for any here who may have this understanding of salvation in Christianity that it's just simply a ticket to heaven and then they're good to go and why would I invest in the life of my church? Why would I reach out to the community in the love of the gospel? Why would I go deeper in this? God, I pray that they would be convicted by Paul's encouragement and prayer for the church, that they would go deeper into the love of Christ and understand the facets of it and how the power of God can work in their life. God, would you help us to open up to that? Give us faith to take the next step in this faith journey. Jesus, thank you that once we make a decision of faith based on the gospel, that that Holy Spirit seals us, that we don't need to live day to day wondering, are we saved? Will you invite us into your family, into your home? Jesus, thank you that because of your sacrifice on the cross, because of that comforter that you promised to the disciples that we now have indwelling us, because of our personal decision of faith in your shed blood and your broken body, thank you that we are part of God's family now and always. God, help us to revel in that. Help us to experience all that we can. It's endless. It's immeasurable. We can never find the depth or the height or the width or the length, but God, help us to pursue you in that. God, thank you for all that you've given us. 
in the gospel and in our salvation, the power of the spirit, the sacrifice of your son. God, thank you for your love for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.